Hello. When, as I'm sure you do from time to time, you use the phrase, I said to myself, or I asked myself, do you ever stop to consider who exactly is having this conversation? Apparently, there isn't just one ghost in the machine, but two, and they sometimes disagree. My father-in-law was fond of telling a story about something that happened to him when a child, until one day he retold it in front of his mother, who confirmed every detail was true, apart from the fact that the incident involved not him, but his brother. Indeed, many of the everyday ways in which we think of ourselves are pretty odd, some clearly erroneous, and that's when we're functioning normally. But what can we learn about what it is to be human from people whose sense of reality and self-awareness are fragile or fragmented? What would happen to your sense of selfhood if you woke up and the last decade of your life was a blank? Or if you'd become obsessed with a particular part of your body? In this episode of Bridges to the Future, we'll be exploring the nature of selfhood through the prism of ordinary people dealing with far from ordinary experiences and feelings. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by the philosopher, historian, writer, Noga Ariki, and the author of a powerful new book, The Sealing Outside, The Science and Experience of the Disrupted Mind. Noga, how are you? Hi, Matthew. Thank you so much for this very beautiful introduction. I'm feeling you said it in better words than, 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 than I did. <laughs> the one line I used to describe what I set out to do was I wanted to understand how the self studies itself and how it loses itself. And in other words, what the science of the self in psychology, neuroscience, and so on, with the input of philosophy, of course, can tell us about what we are and especially can tell us about what we are when we are not entirely ourselves, when something has gone wrong. So when there are issues in mental health or what we call mental health, and what is the nature actually of this mental health? One of the things, Nova, about the book is that you're bringing together the way we think about our bodies, our brains, our minds, but also as a writer, it seems to me you're trying to bring together different disciplines. I was struck reading the book, as I've been struck on many occasions, by the problems that are generated by the split within different disciplines, which mean that they don't speak to each other. And often reality, human beings, society gets lost. I mean, I, I'm very aware of this in the social sciences where economists and sociologists and anthropologists and psychologists just look at the world in completely different ways, which make any kind of integrated account very difficult. And in your book, you, you want to bring together, you do bring together the perspectives of neuroscience, of people looking at organic matter, at the body, at lesions in the brain or whatever, with with psychiatry, with the study of, of people's felt emotions and perceptions, and you bring them together throughout the book. But one of the reasons, perhaps, is it right now that, that a lot of the re research that you refer to in the book isn't known 
to the general public is because it's trapped within these kind of closed disciplines. That's absolutely right. I've never liked the, the idea of, of disciplines in academia. There's a historical reasons for which these disciplines have become split or at least why these borders between them have been erected. And I actually tell a bit of the story in the book as well, how this unit of neuropsychiatry, where I was able to sit for a year and a half, going once a week to see these patients. I saw them, by the way, only each one, only once, completely anonymously. This unit was of neuropsychiatry was formed in the Paris hospital precisely because neurology and psychiatry had become divorced. That's already even just within medicine. And the, the separation of these two disciplines had sort of taken place on the grounds of that hospital where in the 19th century Charcot had practiced the Petit Salpetrier. The splitting of perspectives is both necessary for the development within each discipline Obviously, so you can actually get somewhere within each discipline. At the same time, it is really actually problematic. And so, for example, one example is indeed this lag between the cutting edge science that is indeed not at all known to the general public, or at least not very much yet, that I tried to bring to the fore in the book, and this application to the clinical. There is no, not much application yet within a clinical world of what we now know about the workings of, for example, interoception, the sense of our body from within, how so many of our emotional difficulties can be really looked at through those particular theories. And we don't yet know really how to do this. So for example, in the clinic, what I saw a lot was doctors almost like, well, go see a physical therapist, uh, let's give you this antidepressant. Uh, very few tools really in neurology to actually help people, which is quite depressing, I have to say. But what was not depressing and what was actually very inspiring in those sessions was the possibility of a conversation between neurologists and psychiatrists. And that was the thing that really struck me was that these sessions at the hospital in Paris, I mean, it's very rare. There's so many people now who suffer from mental ill health. It is often referred to as an epidemic. And the amount of care they get, the amount of time they get with clinicians is incredibly limited. And yet here are these patients who come into a room, they, they spend an hour or two maybe being quizzed by neurologists, by psychiatrists, who really seem to be intensely listening to what they're saying with a kind of benign curiosity, seeking to find ways of helping. And when this person then leaves the room, the conversation between these clinicians continues as they try to delve into it. And I found that kind of poignant because I thought of all the millions of people, even in rich countries like Britain, who would never have that quality, that depth, that holistic kind of attempt to engage with their symptoms. They might get 10 minutes and the poor hassle clinician who speaks to them for 10 minutes will then have to come up with the best solution they can find. It's absolutely true. I was very aware of how extraordinary, how in a sense luxurious those sessions were. And I have to say, they don't, they don't exist anymore. Right now, at least as of, you know, the, the unit has shut down. It was an extraordinary experience and an extraordinary opportunity for the patients who were able to actually get that care. I don't think it's, I really don't think it's very common at all. You're absolutely right. 
the doctors who were doing this investigation, this prodding, this care of these patients were extraordinary. I mean, the, the top of their fields, really thoughtful, profoundly able clinicians. There's no doubt about that. And there are many, but I think, unfortunately, because of the, the way the medical systems are throughout the world at this stage, I mean, however rich the country, there is very little chance for even the best physicians to practice in such a way. Their time is too little. You need time to understand what's going on. You really need to think. And you need to give a chance for the patient to actually divulge him or herself. That's something that is very hard to, mm. to do. Well, um, no, absolutely. And, and this was genuinely patient centered care patient patient centered care exactly. patient and patient patient centered care exactly. you hear so much about and when when you read when i read about it in the book i i thought how incredibly rare yeah it is and, uh, and it, it, yeah. it, it is now yeah. I, I want to i want to turn over to some of the things that particularly interested you in the book that is to say ideas that wove in and out of your case studies and your analysis so one idea that comes up a lot is Help me get this right. Anosognosia? Anosognosia, yes. Anosognosia, great. So anosognosia is not knowing, as I understand it. That's right. Not knowing you're ill. And poignantly, the example you give of anosognosia, more than anything, is is your mother, who at the beginning of your book, she is starting to suffer from Alzheimer's. And then very sadly, by the end of your book, she has died of the condition. Although... As you say, her experience of it, and I've seen other people who've had Alzheimer's who've had much, much worse experience, was quite benign. She was quite cheerful, even as she lost her, her faculty. It was much harder for you in some ways than it was for her. But, but the particularly interesting thing from this perspective was that she did not have an awareness of her condition, whereas many of the patients, the case studies that you look at in the book, they were aware of their condition. And, and this is an important distinction. Very Anosognosia is actually was actually a blessing in the case of my mother, and I think it is so in the case of Alzheimer's. Usually, does come. I mean, it does come as an anosognosia, and actually, how this works has also been studied. It's a blessing because the person really does not know what's going on. I mean, maybe at the very beginning, there's a awareness, which sometimes for very few seconds can be intense and profoundly disturbing. Maybe then it can be a little bit dim, but then it disappears. And my mother was actually blessed during her last two years. She was um, serene. She was happy. She was happier than she'd ever been. It was a rather extraordinary thing to see. And of course, it was very hard for people around her, for the daughters. It was extremely difficult because it is disturbing to have this strange asymmetry happening where one person knows what's going on and the other person does not. It creates a boundary that wasn't there anymore, that wasn't there before. I mean, it creates a border. And one has to adapt the whole relation, the whole basis of the relation between, well, in, this, in my case, between myself and my mother, uh, had to be redrawn. The whole, everything that I'd always known ever since my birth had to be redrawn. It's a quite a radical experience, which she did not have because she wasn't aware of it. So I, in a sense, if you, ex- you know, experiences that which you can be you're conscious of, or you can define consciousness as the capacity to have an experience, I was aware it was going on. She was not. So it was profoundly asymmetrical. And I had to just accept it. You have to accept 
this process because it's absolutely nothing you can do about it apart from make sure that the person is well cared for and, and also interacting every day, able to, to do you know, pleasant things on the moment. It's a rather strange adventure, which so many people have in so many ways. And I also realized how lucky I was because, because my mother was, was happy in her, uh, in her dementia. And there are other dementias which are not so happy, which are actually uh, profoundly disturbing. Uh, with your well, yes, it, 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 it chimed with my experience, former mother-in-law who succumbed to Alzheimer's. And I, I guess what I learned caring for her from time to time was, first of all, never to correct her, not to say things that reminded her or gave her a glimpse of the fact that something was awry. Right. And I understand that, you know, the advice that is given to, to people caring for people with Alzheimer's is if, for example, someone with Alzheimer's in a care home says, well, where's the taxi to take me home? The yeah. best thing is to say it'll be here soon rather than what are you talking about? You, this is your home because that, oh, absolutely. That, that, that disturbs people. But also the role of depression and anxiety in this and that you couldn't do anything about the Alzheimer's, but you could take drugs that would help with the anxiety and, and depression and that was significant. But like a lot of other concepts in your book, what we're seeing here is an extreme version in your mother towards the end of her life of something which is, true of us all we are all anosognosic or whatever the, whatever the right <laughs> word yeah word I, we, I, we are all to some extent unaware of our nature and of our absolutely peculiarities that's in a sense i mean yeah, that's, that's true and i, I actually actually also did write that i had set out thinking oh maybe i should write a book about anosognosia but the blind spot at the center of our own self we cannot see ourselves as we all live within a blind spot of the self uh, but like, you know, the horses who cannot see right in front of them. That's basically all of us. It's true. And most of us aren't aware of our of what we are look like to other people. We most of us are unaware of our subtle neuroses or our worst ones, even with therapy. I mean, it's a kind of I saw almost the, the comedy in it. And I thought this is wow, okay, let's I should write a book around that. But of course I realized that no, it's actually not so funny. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and there are people who are really suffering and uh, the, the difficult elements in, in this mean that you cannot, that there is, yes, there is a difference between the pathology and the ordinary blindness, if you like. There is a difference. And even though I was also interested in tracing precisely that, the kind of very porous border between normalcy and pathology, it's a very progressive shift. I mean, and all of us are potentially patients. Yes, in that sense, it's, this is about us all, for sure. The patient isn't some you know, strange alien. It's us. At the same time, we know when we are ill most of the time, except when this illness affects the brain in such a way that we are unable to actually realize that we are ill. That's, it really is a, a, quite an, a, a strange form of anosognosia, if you think about it. Let's turn to an, another powerful theme of the book which is around memory and one of the I, I spoke at the beginning about the erroneous views that we have of ourselves and one of the erroneous views that we're very fond of is the kind of memory bank idea which is that something happens and a memory is created and it goes into a kind of part of our brain like a, a book being filed in a particular place in the bookshelves and then 
when we recall it, we just go back to that book and we remove it from the shelves. And if it hasn't opened, as it were, since we put it there, then it will be in that same form. But of course, that's not really how memory works at all. And I was reminded in your book of a, of a novel by Julian Barnes called A Sense of an Ending. And, and what that book, what I got from that book was a very simple idea, which is every time we remember something, we don't remember the thing itself. We remember the last time we remembered it. And that in a sense, our memory plays a kind of game of Chinese whispers. And and just like in that game of Chinese whispers, sometimes what happens in that game is that the first thing that is whispered is exactly the one that is remembered when 15 people have whispered it to each other. But at other occasions, the first thing that's whispered is utterly unrecognisable by the time it goes all the way around the circle. And that's much more like what memory is like, isn't it? Yeah, that's a, that's a lovely analogy. Yes, I mean, in a sense, every time you retrieve a memory, so to speak, you change it, right? It changes. It never remains static. There is no such thing as static memory. It's a constant construction and reconstruction. And that's what we're always doing. In a sense, our memories also are present. We would have no present if we had no memory, but we would have no memory if we had no present either. And so it's a, it also it's part of this very complex process that enables us to actually even have a sense of time and continuum. And yes, you can have these, you know, memories that are not, that you started off in the introduction talking about this memory that was not the one that, that it was somebody else's memory. You can, or you can, you can construct a, a memory out of a, a photograph. You imagine you had, you were at a scene, of course, where you never were. All these things that happen because we're constantly, constantly recreating our memories. The storage analogy was never correct at all. And you point out that memory is much closer neurologically to imagination, imagination. Than, it, than it is to perception. It is. And there are, when there are difficulties, when there are uh, uh, lesions that undermine memory function, imagination is also affected. And there are also different kinds of memory, as we know. But in the case, for example, of, 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 my, of my mother's Alzheimer, what disappeared in her case was her autobiographical memory, meaning the memory that of her past. For some people, it's their past that stays that is retrieved when they have dementia. And in the case of my mom, it was actually the opposite. So she, it's as if her life no longer had sense, meaning, even though she remained the person she'd always been. So again, out of that, watching this, seeing it, participating in it as well, I was really thinking through the whole, this relationship between memory and self. And a lot of the people that you, you a lot of the cases that you talk about, in fact, all of them, nearly all of them, one way or another, have issues to do with memory. Now, I, I want to turn now. Because there's no, there's no experience without memory. So in, in all, it's absolutely true in all these, these, these cases, all these patients, some disruption in the inner sense of time happened, mm -hmm. disruption in memory function, and therefore disruption in the sense of self at some level. Well, let's turn to a couple of the people whose, whose cases that you describe. And as you say, these are people that you only met once for an hour and a half or so. Yeah, I didn't and even meet. I was just sitting in. You were just sitting there. And, yeah. and this isn't a redemptive story about them all getting cured. You, you, you listen to them being discussed. We don't hear anything more about them. But they're fascinating. And, and I want to start with, with Vanessa. Yes. So Vanessa, basically at the age of 38, has... It was a hypoglycemic attack, wasn't it? But she, she, some, she basically she has a, a, a physical trauma. And when she 
wakes up from this, as it were, she's lost the last 10 years of her life. So she, yes. she can only remember when she was 28, not when she was 38. And her life has changed. She has a husband who she wouldn't have chosen at 28, that she seems to have chosen by the age of 38. And she doesn't really like him and gets divorced. She's put on a lot of weight, which is something that she would not have done when she was 28. Now, what I found fascinating about Vanessa in Vanessa's case was the spectrum of explanations that the doctors were kind of engaging with. So you could go from one extreme, which would be a fully organic account, which would be, well, no, literally the bit of the brain that in one way or another determined whether or not she could remember the last 10 years had been damaged. And she had lost that bit of memory. Now, that's obviously not exactly how the brain works at all, but it was almost like losing a bit of memory, like losing you know, your big toe amputated or something. It had just gone. And there you are. It's a purely organic account. At the other extreme would be, well, this was basically invented. This is an entirely, not, not only psychological, but in some ways deliberate. She just decided, she just decided she didn't really like being who she was. And the best way to deal with the fact she had a husband she didn't like and she didn't like her weight was to just pretend that the last 10 years hadn't happened. Now, of course, the doctors don't, I think, believe that either of those extremes are likely, but there is something in between those two extremes, and there are so many different options available to them between them. Yes, the fully organic would have corresponded to a neurological issue. The psychology, to say psychological hypothesis, would correspond to what psychiatrists would be taking care of with this unreally used, but that was hovering there in the background was, was hysteria, this idea, or, or this, this idea of a, of a dissociation, of a functional issue that somehow you cannot understand, pinpoint organically what's going on, but something really has happened. And the only conclusion you can draw is, well, it must be a mixture of all of this. It's neither one nor the other. So what is it? And what, what doctor can help? That is the question precisely because of this division between disciplines and, and specialisms. So in the case of, of uh, yeah, Vanessa, by the way, all the names, of course, were changed and, and the details of their lives as well. In the case of Vanessa, the mystery of her case actually is, is, is intense. Actually, it was the hardest chapter to write because it, it was extremely difficult to understand what really had happened to her. If she had willed this, she would have willed it unconsciously. But what is happening in that case? What were the persons involved in unconscious wishing to undo a memory or to wipe out 10 years in your life? Obviously, it's not. Uh, what sort of willing is it? It's not, if it what, what sort of willing is unconscious willing? That's another question. And that's a question also for psychoanalysts. You, th- you see here that you really need all these various different approaches to understand, to even be able to even formulate the question in a way that makes sense and to come up with some, some sort of answer. There was no answer in the end in, in the case of Vanessa. Actually, very often, <laughs> no, there were really a lot of questions and not many answers. But in her case, it seemed that, yes, yeah, something must have happened because she did have this hypoglycemically induced coma after which she woke up having forgotten and then yes the doctors were sort of hinting at some sort of um, yes you could call it hysteria you can there are many other ways of, of calling it today I actually talked about Jeanne who in the 19th century precisely had 
talked about dissociated, dissociated memories. Herself wasn't dissociated, but what was happened was that she had separated herself off from things that had happened in her own life. Yeah, what so was interesting about her, I thought, no, was that like uh, many of the other people had kind of multiple, they were really finding it very difficult to function in all sorts of ways. And she was... Functioning perfectly well. She functioning was perfectly. Well. She just didn't have these 10 years. And that, I think, was one of the reasons why the doctors were looking at her slightly askance, which is, to, as you say, not, not nobody seriously suggesting she'd simply made it up. But as you say, what kind of, what kind of willing is, is unconscious willing? And how can, to what extent can you hold anybody responsible in any sense, any useful sense, but the fact that maybe that which has happened to them, even if it has got some kind of organic substrate, has very convenient for them in some sense. It serves a psychological purpose. And that leads one to, to then start to wonder about, as you say, some sense of agency, even if it's not conscious agency. Really, really fascinating. Yeah, so, no, the, yeah. That, that's precisely exactly what why we need to understand this in interaction with other body systems in the sense you know, again, the mystery of what's going on in your, if it's not happening in your brain, where is it happening? Yeah. And that's another question. So that's why the whole history of hysteria, which I also talk about in, in, in the book, remains uh, very, very, it's a concept that remains alive. Again, it's term, it's now, now you use the words, you know, it's a conversion disorder or, or functional neurological disorder, psychogenic disease, but we still don't really know what we're talking about when we're talking about these things. And so, yes, precisely. It's very hard, just hard to understand what's been going on, but you can only think of it as not reducible to one particular explanation. Yeah, and this is something else that struck me about the book, is that, as I said earlier, is this incredible level of, of care and concern and focus, and yet still the mysteries remain unraveled. Let's turn... To another case of, of Claire. Now, Claire is somebody who has had a reasonably successful life or a life that has been meaningful that they value. And then she has an operation and, and subsequent to the operation, she becomes obsessed with her right hand. Yes. Her right hand almost seems to have turned on her in a sense. It no longer does what she asks it to do. And and she becomes deeply self-conscious of it. And again, a bit like Vanessa, it, it, there is some sense that there's something that has happened in the brain, but really not enough to explain what's going on here. And I, I found this chapter particularly poignant. I, I suffer from anxiety. I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. I have IBS. And I, mm-hmm. and I, I put up with these things. In, in a way, actually, that Claire kind of put up with her right hand. And it made me think when I was reading the chapter, and, and one of your doctors, they're very patient, they're very caring, but, but one of the doctors almost becomes impatient and just wants to say to her, says to her, why don't you just take the glove off your hand? Why no, that was actually me saying, thinking oh, that. Oh, you, it was you <laughs> like, thinking that. I was, Sorry, I was I thinking mis- it. Take off I'm, the glove. <laughs> I'm mis- I'm, I misunderstood. But right. there's a kind of sense of, well, just... Almost not, I mean, not snap out of it in a sense, but why have you let this thing take, take you over? And actually, I, we all, to an extent, give in to our idiosyncrasies. They become part of who we are, and it becomes easier to live with them than to challenge them. It's true. IBS is on a continuum, is actually the same family of what she was suffering from, which is what is called as recognized syndrome, complex regional pain syndrome, CRPS. 
and it's an it's, it's a functional disease just as as IBS is or chronic fatigue syndrome all these syndromes that again do not seem to have a particular organic basis but that are real and they actually have an organic i mean they have an organic and a real, lived reality physiological reality but we don't really know what the causality is now there are many theories now being developed again in psychiatry in neuroscience and psychology to to understand what's been going on and certain uh, therapies seem to be uh, are being developed that that may work to actually stop to actually lighten the, the load and break this emphasis on this particular organ. This, and, but again, it's all to do with this constant dialogue, conversation between the brain and the rest, the rest of the body. So mechanistic medicine, as it's developed, has, doesn't really know where to put these kinds of, of ailments. They are ailments. And again, what you consider an ailment or not is also culturally defined. I mean, in the sense... You say you, you know, maybe our culture says that we can put up with these kinds of difficulties, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe they should be cured, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe there's some ailments that we think, think that maybe some diseases. I mean, unease that we requalify as diseases that should be just lived with. We don't really know. But these again, these are all cultural definitions in a way. But these functional diseases are, are fascinating, and they seem to be best explained as so many other things these days by the predictive processing theory that is now used in so many corners of, of, of psychology and philosophy as well. Whereas in, there's a, an ability to correct and this is a prediction error, meaning there's a, the sense that, well, there's something I explain in the book. It's, it's uh, this idea that all our perceptions and sensations are actually predictions and there's a gap between the prediction and what we actually experience and that we constantly correct the error that is that gap when we fail to correct that error then we have some form of pathology and that form of pathology can also be an emotional pathology it's a way of explaining the brain as a, as a predictive organ as Carl Friston the neuroscientist has, has done and is doing it comes from from computational neuroscience it's a very sophisticated mathematical model, which I don't understand the mathematics of it, but the model itself is so powerful that many people are using it to actually try to understand what's going on in our cognition, in our sensations, emotions, and also then in the difficulties or the, the obstacles we can create within ourselves, within our body. We're doing it to ourselves in a way. But why is that? Again, these are, in instance, disruptions in ordinary function that can help us understand what ordinary function is. There's always been in the history of, throughout the history of neuroscience actually begins with using this idea that you, you can use a, a disruption ordinary function to understand normal function. In a sense, I also set out to do that. Oliver Sacks set out to do that when he told his, his stories of patients as a neurologist, as a full-fledged doctor, with a different perspective entirely. But it's true that then, even if you do that, you realize again, as I told, uh, mentioned before, this, this border between normal and pathological is really quite thin. And so it's true, as you said, you can end up living with these functional disorders as if they were normal. And then it becomes difficult to actually put an end to that order of things. It's a bit like deciding to live with a neurosis. You'll only try to get rid of it to some extent if it really starts disrupting your daily life. If it doesn't, then you can live with it. 
That's think, one of the. I think, I think sometimes people put up with it, even when it does disrupt their daily life, because it. Becomes, oh yes, they do. It kind of becomes the way in which they organise their lives. Predictive processing is just, it is just one of the many important, complex, concepts that that you share with us in the book, Nogan. And it's a it's a wonderful book. It's very Thank rich you. and 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 powerful, but also. I found it incredibly moving as well. So thank you. So thank you so much. Well, thank um, you for being such a wonderful reader and and for saying things you said about it. Well, it's been great, and I look. I recommend to anybody the ceiling outside the science and experience of the disrupted mind. And I finish with this a, a tribute to the book Noga, which is to say, as a human being, it's never too late to realize how wonderful and how strange you are. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.